1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. My guest on the program is the director Anne Bogart, author of the recent book, The Art of Resonance. And welcome to the program.
1: Hi Andy. And I also think I think you should tell your listeners actually that we actually know each other a bit.
2: Oh okay, okay. I should I shouldn't uh, I should let K drop and say that should, I was I was Anne's student at Columbia. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You shouldn't <laughs> hide behind your professional life there so much. Okay,
2: thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Lesson number one. Um Yeah, so I, I really love this book. Um and, and there's one sentence you write that I'd I'd like to kind of reflect back to you and, and hear more about. You write our job as artists is to become consciously resonant to the world rather than alienated from it. Mm. Could, could you talk about what that term resonant means to you?
1: Well, I have to say I'm proud of that sentence now that you read it back to me. It's a nice that's, bit of that's business. That's a pretty damn good sentence. <laughs> no, the resonance part is um, comes from a sudden understanding of what the essential nature of and job of the theater is and should be. And perhaps it's true for all of the arts. I used to think that the theater was the act of remembering. In other words, that we remember people who wrote the plays who may not be with us still. We remember questions that have been worked on for centuries. You know, the great questions are the ones that... um, that, that, that come back after thousands of years. Why do we do Greek plays? We need to remember these questions. So I thought of if the theater were a verb, it would be to remember. And I also thought that the role of the theater was to create memory proteins in the, in the, in the brain of the audience. In other words, neuroscientists have found out that when you you create a memory it's through the heat of experience and emotion why do we remember some things and not others It's because there was an emotion that occurred uh, uh in 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 the experience which caused a literal protein to grow in the brain and then we have a synaptical activity to get to that protein so i used to think that it was about creating memories and that a great play was one that you remembered for a long time until my colleague Leon Ingelsrud uh, from City Company, my company, asked me, what about his mother? His mother is undergoing um, serious Alzheimer's. What about people who cannot form memories? And I had to really think about that. And I started remembering that um, that about. I thought about reading. I thought about the fact that books have been such a huge influence in my life, and that they have really forged who I am, and yet Andy, sometimes I forget not only what the books uh, taught me, I also forget the names of the books. I forget the lessons I learned, and and that used to bother me that I would f- read and forget so much until I realized that it isn't actually remembering. It's the it's the what happens in the act of reading, where. Uh, 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 a kind of, as they say in French, a frisson de corps, uh, uh, goosebumps happen. And I am altered by the act of reading. I am changed, uh, what they call metanoia. I am, I am in, the, in the action of it, I am a ch- I'm changed as an entity. So it's not so much about memory, it's about, and this is where the word comes in, resonance, to resound. That the material that I'm interacting with resounds sounds in my body, and I, it is in the heat of the moment that resonance occurs. And so in that spirit, I started thinking about how important resonance was and how resonance works certainly in music, but in, um, in experiences in life and especially in the theater. And in the theater, an actor's body resonates with the body of the audience. You know these sort of essential, um, essential qualities of what the theater is. And so I decided to write a book about resonance in order to study it. I mean, the only way I have the patience to study really deeply is to write about it. So it's a, it's a it's a selfish act in some sense, but I hope that others enjoy it.
2: I think it becomes less selfish when you you know publish the book and, and do mm-hmm. interviews promoting it and yeah. such. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that that idea of resonance is so fascinating to me. And and I I didn't, I don't think I wrote down this sentence, but you have a great sentence about how a a definition of resonance, that it's, you know, a a strong vibration that is at the same pitch as another another vibration. So it's the idea that, you know, when you're in the audience, you're in some way undergoing the same process, maybe even neurological process as the actors. You know, that if if you're, you know, if you're, hamlet dying uh, as an actor you're you're in some way you know resonating that experience out to the audience members i i, I th- certainly know that to be true just you know as as, as somebody who goes to theater a lot but
1: um, yeah there seems it, to be
2: it, some neuroscience behind that as well
1: it, it, there is and it's a very contentious part of neuroscience it's something which um some neuroscientists poo poo and others celebrate and it's called mirror neurons and it's really fascinating when it comes to the theater because what 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 some scientists origin, originally, I think, in the 1990s in in Italy, and later um, made even more uh, uh, interesting in in England, discovered is that if and they were looking at monkeys, if a monkey is this is like monkey see monkey do, but if a monkey is looking at another monkey, one monkey is doing something and the other isn't these neurons, which they now call mirror neurons, are activated in the watcher that are the same neurons that actually create the action in the doer. And in in London, there was a test done with with the uh, uh, Royal Ballet and I think a capoeira group where they tested whether ballet dancers who were hooked up to MRI machines, as they watched somebody dance, they were dancing too, but what they were doing is restraining themselves from dancing because they were watching. So the same mirror neurons are going off in the mm-hmm. watcher as the doer. Same thing with a capoeira group. They were watching as other capoeira uh, dancers were dancing, their their mirror neurons was activated. What was really interesting is if a um, ballet dancer watched a capoeira, capoeira being a Brazilian uh, uh, martial art form that's very dancey, if a... If a, if a Ballet dancer is watching a capoeira dancer. Those neurons are not fired as much. They don't. It doesn't get as excited. So why that's exciting to me is so if it's true that humans like monkeys have mirror neurons, the theater when you go to the theater, what you're watching is very close to what you do in your life. Say it's a living room set and somebody picks up a drink. I'm thinking of, uh, uh, of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know. Uh, makes a toast, sits on the couch. These are very close to what you know. So an audience is not just passively watching, they are restraining themselves from doing the same thing as the actors doing, which sets up a resonance between the audience and the actors, which is very, very interesting and very alive. I think
2: that this is this is obviously something that still goes on to a certain extent, but I think of sort of like the, the great mid-century American plays that were kind of these big arguments about the state of society and sort of part yeah. of the pleasure of seeing these plays is that you'd go and have dinner and you'd you'd have the same or versions of the same argument for you know another two or three hours I mean that yeah. seems to be kind of part of the same thing is that you know it's, it's, it's easy to imagine ourselves as these characters and kind of uh, carrying out these uh, the, these arguments or these actions or whatever um, and then that also to me brings up the question of resonance being a very, very much a kind of dialogic process that that gives the audience something to do and is not entirely dependent on, you know, the quality of the performance itself. Like, it seems very interesting to me to, to locate resonance as the kind of uh, central thing that makes theatre, theatre, because there could be a performance that could resonate for one group of people and not for another group of people.
1: And that's sort of the, the horror and wonder of theatre. Some nights <laughs> it doesn't work, and it's horrible. And you know when you're sitting in a in an audience and it doesn't work. And you also know and what's what distinguishes the theater from film, for example, if you win, or maybe I should say myself, if I walk into uh, a cinema and it's half empty or three quarters empty, I'm delighted because I think, oh, I can put my feet up, I'm really happy, I can spread out. If I walk into a theater and it's half empty, my heart sinks because Mm -hmm. what going to the theater requires the, um, the, the joined energy of an audience who actually helps the thing happen. You know, I had my first time back into the theater uh, after COVID. I mean, not that we're after COVID now, but um, was on Memorial Day weekend. And I was, I didn't want to go. It was a show that was outside, out of doors. And, um, and it was safe and it was uh, on a farm actually. And, uh, but it was cold and rainy and I didn't really want to go, but I ended up going and it was not; a, it was a play which was not something that which was particularly well done or particularly exciting, but I ended up having such a great time. First time mm-hmm. back in a year and a half in the theater, and I realized the theater isn't so much about the play; it is partially the play, but it's mostly the audience that comes together to help the play happen. Mm-hmm. And that is part of what makes the theater so gorgeous. That we that, that the play needs us; that we are. That we we come together and as you say if it doesn't happen it's very very disappointing if an audience sits back too much you know i was i was talking with um the very famous uh critic from the the guardian in london michael billington he came to speak to visiting artists at columbia did you ever take that class with me andy
2: i did yeah i love
1: that yeah class. so you know yeah well it's been on zoom lately anyway this was on zoom and michael <laughs> billington is a very august uh and revered critic Um, And he just retired. And so we were asking him questions. And one of them was, well, don't you feel relaxed now? You can go to the theater and not be a critic. You can just sort of enjoy a show. He said, absolutely not. I miss being a critic. And when I go, I try to be a critic uh, because as a critic, all of my senses are heightened because I know I have to write the review. I'm catching everything. I'm watching everything. Oddly enough, a couple of weeks ago, I read the same thing by another critic from the New York Times who said the same thing, who said he had retired, but that he wants to go, that he needs that sort of to be the critic, to be wildly awake and, and responsible, should I say. And I thought of my, my own laziness. Sometimes when I go to the theater, you know, I'm a, I'm a Tony voter. So sometimes I'd go and I just sort of collapse and I don't mind if I go to sleep. But now I think I'd rather be a critic, you know, like to go with a critic's glasses on, to be to be more responsible, to be more able to relate the experience to others afterwards, to be able to have those late nights at dinner talking over the empathic reaction to the play. So you know, it does require. I, I've always called the theater a, a gym for the soul that mm. we go for a workout, you know, and so that workout. <laughs> is something which requires resonance. But resonance doesn't just happen. You have to be in a, in a state that of, of, um, of, of readiness and of uh, uh, openness for resonance yeah. to occur. It happens in music all the time because music is so in every elevator we get on. Sometimes it, we have to go into, the, into a, a, a performance venue to actually hear it, to give ourselves over, to be open to it. Because we sort of hear it so much, we shut down. And we're not as open to hearing Beethoven as we we, we could be. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: There's something something you just said reminds me of something that Lynn Nottage often says. And when I, when I was taking classes with her, she would open every class by asking everybody what they'd seen that week. And there was no you know assignment that you had to see at least at one show between every class period. But you definitely noticed if somebody said, well, I didn't actually see anything. And <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the first couple of weeks, people would say, well, I saw this show. It was it was OK. The acting was was fine, but I didn't like the script. And and she said, replace judgment with curiosity. And I just love that as as a sort of mantra for going to see the theater, that if if you if you tell yourself there's got to be something in this play that that I can take from it, that I can learn from whether or not it's my favorite play in the world. And that requires a a, a kind of active engagement on the part of the audience.
1: I love that Lynn said that, and it's so true. And I mean, the the secret sauce of, of creativity is curiosity. I mean, without it, you do nothing. Nothing happens. And she's absolutely right. And as an audience member, certainly to bring curiosity to the event, rather than cynicism, or I've seen it all, or... You know, how do we, how do we become a blank slate every time we experience a work of art? Mm-hmm. Not that one is a blank slate. One is never a blank slate as has been proven in, 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 in the sciences, but, uh, you know, we come with certain tools, but, um, as much as possible to be open to influence, mm-hmm. which is such a great word and related to influenza, you know, spreading a disease dis ease, you know, it's, uh, those words are fascinating.
2: I'd love to ask you about you know, how you've managed to try to keep open to the kind of vibrations of the outer world at, at this time of uh, profound isolation. One of the things you write is, uh, theater resists the tyranny of simulacrum, mm-hmm. which um, I feel that is uh, you know, profoundly true. And one of the things that I love about theater is that they make you turn off your phone. And yet so much of what is being called theater has existed on screens for the past year and a half. Um have you seen anything in that format that has had that sense of resonance or do you feel like that is kind of uh, inherent to an exclusive to the live event?
1: You know, I, I, I should clock my own cynicism. I got very cynical about zoom performances and zoom readings and zoom tell alls. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I think there's the tendency in the art world anyway, and this is brought, up, brought on by a consumerist culture, is that idea of expressing yourself, mm-hmm. which I actually find really uninteresting. And um, I'm thinking of, um, I'm going to answer your question in a really roundabout way. I'm thinking of John Cage, the, the composer, who, when he was a young man, he got very, very, he got blocked. He got very frustrated for several reasons. One is... Um, that he was a homosexual in a world that didn't accept it, so he felt really shunted out. And secondly was because he was around him were this movement called expression uh, abstract expressionism. And he was really intolerant of, of art being about expressing yourself, just expressing yourself, which, you know, parenthetically, I think was a result of the McCarthy era, that art used to be about things. and then when when you were in danger of being blacklisted, or thrown out of the company or never or country or never working again you tended to say what's left well abstract expressionism or then plays about you and me in my apartment and my problems so that you don't mm-hmm. engage in world issues so he was looking around and he was very frustrated at the whole notion of self expression and it wasn't until he started studying buddhism and found some Sanskrit text that said that the role of art is to create the conditions in which, and I'm going to misquote this horribly, the conditions in which human beings might flourish, really. So it's not about creating something where you express yourself, but about creating certain conditions in which certain things could happen that are of a high human quality. And when the COVID crisis started happening and everything went on to Zoom, I got so sick of seeing people express themselves. You know, there were coronavirus dances and coronavirus readings and coronavirus uh, confessions. And I just couldn't stand it. I saw very little that I found interesting, a few things, but I, I have to clock my own intolerance. I was not very open to it. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote The Art of Resonance during, um, during this COVID period. It was my way of trying to make sense of where we're at. Um, I mean, I'd certainly had this in mind to write before, but be, being stuck in London, I was stuck literally. I was actually, um, my my other half, my wife lives in London, and we split our time between New York and London. And I had gone over with a small suitcase on the 21st of March 2020 oh, wow. for spring break. Essentially, I was going to be there for a week and I was there for a year and a half, and which was great because I could be with my wife for a year and a half, but that's, that's another thing. But um, I took that time to be completely intolerant Although I was on Zoom for about seven hours a day between City Company, and my company, which was online, between Columbia classes, and feeling guilty about the students who were paying so much and have not being able to be together, that I spent twice as much time with my students and also being on the board of SDC, which is the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the Union, where there's 1500 unemployed directors. We had to ed choreographers. I was on Zoom all the time. Which is why, Andy, I couldn't stand watching anything else after that. Yeah. So so the the writing the book became a kind of retreat from the world, but also an engagement in what is necessary, what we need to look at in order to move forward. What do we want to jettison? And so it came down to Cage's notion of creating the conditions for something to happen rather than expressing myself. Of course, there are, you know, every play is an expression of a, of a playwright, as you know, but I want to create the conditions in which that voice can be heard instead of showing you what a great director I am, for example, in my directing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I I for, now I've forgotten what your question was. I think I got really far away from it. But let That's, me know.
2: Yeah, no, I think that was good. I I'd love to kind of continue on the Cage uh, topic a bit. You you did a piece with City Company that was based on John Cage's writings that I, I saw and that I I loved and I thought it was fantastic. Um, and and you write a bit in the book about the idea of originality being something that you're suspicious of, along with the idea of self-expression. Yeah, and you know you you kind of talk about how all art in some way is a remix or a, a revision of something that's happened before. And I, I wonder if we could talk a bit more on a kind of, you know, technical level of like, how do you go about creating pieces from previously created texts? I mean, I, I know you also created a piece based on Brecht's theoretical writings and, and yeah. you've, done other, you've done other kind of text-based work. Like what's, what's your process for doing that kind of stuff?
1: Well, first of all, it's the choice of, of subject matter. So a large part of my work is 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 me studying people I admire. As Heisenberg said, if I can see far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And so whose shoulders do I want to stand on? So I certainly wanted to stand on John Cage's shoulders, which is why thank you for the kind words about the piece, which was called Chess Match Number Five. Uh, and it was it was a way to spend time with, celebrate, and study. John Cage, and and learn from him. Um, I've certainly made pieces about other artists that I admired, including uh, uh, Virginia Woolf, a piece called Room, uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein, a piece called Score, Bob Wilson, Still Alive, a piece called uh, uh, Bob, uh, Orson Welles, a piece called The War of the Worlds. Um, The list goes on. Gertrude Stein. um, These are all people that I'd like to eat and regurgitate, if you know what I mean. And because I'm a little bit lazy, unless I'm doing a play about those people, I don't actually have to take the time for the necessary research. Now, I'm in a great relationship with um, a guy named Jocelyn Clark, who works with me. He's a dramaturg, a writer, um, an Irish guy from Dublin, who I've worked with on, I don't know, 15, 20. I don't know how many plays. And this is the process. I take about a year to ingest and eat the, say, interviews or writings or whatever, depending on the artist, um, of possible text. And I send him usually about 200 pages of possible text. And he's a genius. He sends me back a 30-page script that has a sort of through line and narrative, but all based on he doesn't write anything necessarily. He, he, I mean, sometimes he inserts a few jokes and things, But, but he, uh, uh, which he did with the John Cage piece. He, he, he had the idea, if you don't remember, of all those koans that they kept saying in, during it, which were very funny. Anyway, so he sends me back a script, then the actors memorize it, and then we get in a room and we try to embody it. So it's, it, that sounds simple. It's a long process. It takes a couple of years to, to gather the material then I don't know what, what Jocelyn's magic process is. He, he ingests all the material I send him. He gets an idea for a structure that's usually includes the sort of beating heart, the vulnerability of whatever that character is. Mm. Like when he ingested the, the 200 pages I sent of, from interviews with Bob Wilson, he found a through line in Bob's relationship to his father, to his family, And and somehow there's a sort of emotional through line that I was was escaping me that he finds. So it's um, it's a shared process. And it's it's one in which I always emerge richer as a human being. And I hope that audiences who experience it get some of that um, study in the experience of of seeing the play.
0: Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Saks dot com.
2: You know, years of this academics' research being boiled down into you know fifteen hour long lectures, and you get a kind of concentrated dose,
1: right? That's a that's a great analogy. I'm going to use that. That That's great. That that makes me think of like TED lectures that are eighteen minutes, like sure, a person's whole life, and say, well, tell it in eighteen minutes, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'd like to ask you about the relationship between resonance and dissonance. You 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 Mm -hmm. write that resonance requires dissonance, a, a little bit of kind of imperfection, uh, yeah. which reminded me of uh, Brian Eno's idea that one of the things we love about old recordings of music are the, the things about them that are imperfect and the, the, the pops in the vinyl or the, the times yeah. when the flamenco singer's voice cracks or, or those yeah. sorts of things. Could you talk about kind of how do you leave space for dissonance in your work?
1: Well, first of all, I just want to pick up on your Brian Eno, and then I will talk about it in my own work. But the, um, I, I'm thinking of the Rolling Stones. I read something recently where um, I think uh, in the early R- R- Rolling Stones records when they were recording, I think Keith Richards would do things that, like bring in really bad, st- stupid amplifiers or things sort of off the street that he wanted to put into the recording so that it didn't sound perfect. And then there was an analysis of, of the singing in the Rolling Stones. I guess it's it's Mick Jagger. and uh, Does Keith Richards sing too? I don't
2: know. Rarely, a little. Yeah, a little anyway. Up, but,
1: yeah. but I guess maybe I'm talking about Mick Jagger's voice is that it is on the verge of being wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it interesting. It's on the verge of actually being off tune, but it's not quite there. And something of that attracts us and creates resonance is that wrongness that's, that's, that, that is, is, is in the recordings. And you think about, you know, the, the tragedy of those, what do they call them, Andy? They, they, they are now um, uh, singers get uh, pitch pitch correctors. Oh,
2: auto tune,
1: auto tunes, yeah. which I think is a tragedy because the, the imperfections are actually erased uh, electronically. So, the, the danger is, you know, I think young directors, so I, I teach directing, so I think a lot about directors. Directors are encouraged, say, to have a signature and to have a, a brand, which is, I think, the worst thing that a director can possibly do. And whenever a young director says, you know, do I have a style? I'm like, no, you shouldn't even use the word style. Style is something that people who receive your work, they could actually say you have a style, but you you can't even think about it. You actually have to work from the, the, the dissonance in your own heart. So if you're working from the right place, your work will have enough dissonance. If it's only perfection, if perfection is what you're after, you will A, be always frustrated because perfection is not possible, and B, it's misguided. Because you actually want to have the proper um, uh, ratio between uh, a, an attempt at perfection and dissonance, and I think the examples that you gave from Brian Eno are great. And to continue it, there are you know there's a Japanese pottery which, which which celebrates things that break by putting little gold. Uh, veins in the the broken areas that that you say what is broken is celebrated, what is dissonant, what is imperfect. And imperfection is part of what it means to be human. So if you don't have enough dissonance or imperfection in your work, it's clinical and has no interest and does not resonate. So resonance requires dissonance, a little bit of dissonance. If it's only dissonance, then nobody can hear or see or know what the hell you're doing. But you have to have to deal with the ratio in between. In terms of personally, I don't, I can't say I I have a technique for allowing dissonance. I just try to allow myself not to have the answer for as long as I can. Mm-hmm.
2: Is part of it sort of giving yourself permission to stop trying to tinker with a piece and and kind of fix everything and and kind of letting it go in front of an audience with with a little bit of unfinishedness to it.
1: Not for me, not because for you, yeah. no, not for me particularly. Some people that might be true, but you know, there's a theory that you, you that all of us are either good beginners, good middlers, or good enders, and you mm-hmm. can't be all three. You can be one and a half. And I'm a very good beginner. I'm an okay middler, and I'm a lousy ender. Meaning, I walk into tech with my company, and I'm like, got a book in my hand. I go, guys. We should do a piece about Orson Welles. And they'll go, Anne, could you please concentrate so we can finish this piece? I am a lousy ender. And so I don't have to worry about that. I try to put as much will and energy into actually fixing what's wrong. Yeah. You know, so no, it's not an an attempt not to fix something. Um, Rather, it's an attempt to make big enough choices that can never be anything but imperfect. If you are only choosing to do things that you know you can do, there won't be enough imperfection in them. But if you choose material that's a little beyond yourself, a little too difficult, a little too big, a little too unknowable. You know, I love something that Chuck Mee, you know Chuck Mee, Charles Mm -hmm. Mee, the, the playwright, he said, he was talking about Shakespeare. And he said, with a normal play, you start out the play and you don't know who the characters are. And by the end, you know who the characters are. He said, with Shakespeare and certain other great writers, you start out thinking you know who the characters are. And by the end of the play, you have no idea who they are, which I think is so Mm -hmm. profound. So you actually want to actually open up things through technique to have multiple meanings, to have multiple resonances, to resonate differently with everybody, as opposed to fascist art, which tries to make everybody feel the same thing. It's very easy to make everybody feel the same thing and to control the reaction, but to create a moment in which, which unleashes a myriad associations is is the trick.
2: Yeah, I get the sense that part of what you do as a director is you do a kind of crazy amount of preparatory work. Uh, you know, whether it's it's research on the on the subject matter or or, or whatever. And then that allows you to kind of exist in the room in a way that something spontaneous can happen. Would you say that's true?
1: I do a tremendous amount of research so that when I go into rehearsal, I let it all go. I have to have some of that to stand on. I don't go into rehearsal and try to make the research happen on stage. It gives me the permission to go into rehearsal. What I tend to do in rehearsal is I share that research In about eight hours of talking sometimes i talk to the company about every stupid idea i've had every interesting thing i've learned i share the research if i'm so fortunate to work with a dramaturg the dramaturg does as well and then we let it all go then we just start to figure out how to construct the production to embody the production but without that research i wouldn't be able to walk into the room i wouldn't have the right to it's it's my job
2: That's great. Um, I wonder if we could talk about some of the influences and the other influences you talk about in in the book. You've talked about John Cage. Peter Brook is also someone that you talk about being a a great inspiration to you, both as a director and a writer. Could you talk a bit about what you've taken from his work over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, mostly it's his writing. I mean, I am not quite old enough to have experienced the great productions, his, his early productions of, say, Marat Saad or Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm just a little bit too young. I can't believe I'm saying I'm young because I'm so not anymore. But um, uh, it's mostly his writing and his his example. He is a model of somebody who keeps going through changes. You know, he had a hugely successful career in the UK, left it completely, went to Paris, started this international uh, uh, research center, went to Africa tried to start over to discover what the essence of theater was. So I channel most of my information of of Peter Brook through his writing. And I do mention at the beginning of The Art of Resonance, uh, his first book, uh, The Empty Space, which had a massive influence on the theater culture because he essentially called out the theater for its excesses and said, we need to go back. And this was a period... In the sixties, when the theater did go back, and, and, and it was connected with, say, Grotowski's work, or in this country, the work of the Manhattan Project or the group, uh, not the group theater. That's of course much earlier. The Performance Group, or uh, uh, many many um, uh, groups that emerged to re looked that stripped away and started over again. So um, he, in that sense, he's a he's an, a, an inspiration by by example. By, by, by modeling a, a way to behave in the world.
2: I'd love to talk about City Company. And you're, you used to be the artistic director of City Company, and now you're one of three co-artistic directors. Um, how have you been able to kind of continue growing as an artist without, you know, doing the Peter Brook thing of abandoning your career in England and moving to France and abandoning that career and moving to Africa? No. I, I feel like that's, the, that's kind of the model that certain... Uh, certain other directors have taken is sort of ripping up everything but how do you kind of maintain a sense of like creative fluidity while also having a a, an institution that you're you know to some extent responsible for
1: well first of all the 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 notion of being a co-artistic director yes I was artistic director for about 23 years before we switched to um to co-artistic directorship but if you notice if you look around the country right now and the changes that are happening that are cultural, political, et cetera, one of the manifestations of that is many, many theaters are putting in co-artistic directorships, and it is in order to rip down the hierarchy. And it was we, I would say we were an early modeler of that, is that we said, in fact, it's a misnomer that I, I, I have the title of artistic director, but it is the work of many people who, 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 who make the, the, the impossible happen. And so we went to a model of three of us, which is a much better way to make decisions, because the three of us—Leon Inglesrud, who I mentioned earlier about his his mother who has Alzheimer's, and Ellen Lauren. Both of them, are actors in the company, they the, each of them have very, very different personalities. They look at each problem in a different way. You know, Leon looks at it very philosophically. Ellen looks at it very practically and company-oriented and people's lives-oriented. And I look at it in, pro, in in prognosing the future, what projects we're going to do. So first of all, that that part of it is um, is 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 key secondly to answer your question the reason i've stuck so long and we're turning 30 next year is that these company members keep me honest um i find they they cannot tolerate my jokes for example i can go into any situation with actors i haven't worked with and i can be hilarious and they all love my jokes and they think i'm so smart (laughs) not city company they look at me and they just say you know we've heard that before Or if I try to do something in rehearsal that's not thought through, they say, we've done this before. You've pulled that card before, Anne. Mm -hmm. They are intolerant of my laziness. Mm -hmm. And it's largely for that that I haven't left. And also the company doesn't leave. They're all very fierce about um, uh, dedication. That said, we're reaching our 30th year and making a huge change. We're, end, we're going to stop being a production company uh, because I didn't want us to just fade out. I wanted us to have like we're having fantastic, despite COVID, we're going to have a fat, fantastic 30th year anniversary season with plays and we're going to sort of come, come to a real fullness before we switch to being um, an organization that's about legacy and training and stuff like that, but no longer. And the other thing is that I get my yah yas is that what they say by directing opera when I'm not directing city company, I direct opera and I love it. I get to do all the things and people do laugh at my jokes in the opera rehearsals, you know, (laughs) and, um, and it's like large scale and there's, you know, some incredible singers and there's an orchestra in the room, those things to me, absolutely thrilling. And, and, uh, And the other thing is that at a certain point with City Company, after we were about 15, 18 years old, I said, wait a minute. So, and this goes back to the idea of imperfection. Right now, this is a company of actors who are really good at what they do, and a company of designers who are really good at what they do. So what's the point? We know we can put on a classical play, a new play. And I started thinking about the, the fact that we had created a community within the, uh, th- the company. And I started thinking the only thing I'm actually interested in is for this group of incredible actor athletes to meet other communities and see what happens. And we started doing works with other companies. We started by doing a production uh, with the Martha Graham uh, company. And then we did a production with Bill T. Jones's company. And then we did a production with Bang on the Can, uh, uh, the, the amazing music group. Then we did a, a piece with a visual artist, Ann Hamilton. And then we did, the last thing we did before COVID is we worked with Streb, who are all incredible uh, athletes who can throw themselves through glass. You know, and each time the company will say, well, my company will say, how can we possibly do this? We, I can't crash through glass. These are things I can't do. So it's the bringing together of two sort of stellar communities to make something new, or co-directing with Elizabeth Streb, or co-directing with Bill T. Jones. These are things that create great collisions that keep me young and really unstable in a good way.
2: Did the Streb collaboration premiere, or is that was that in rehearsal when COVID happened?
1: It premiered. It was fantastic. We did it in in Montclair at um, at, at Jed, Her, uh, Jed Harris. Uh, uh, uh at the uh, peak performances in Montclair um, mm-hmm. and Jed wheeler is an amazing producer and uh, it w- we ran for a couple two weeks I think it was fantastic it's too expensive for any theater to 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 take on because it has all of the streb machinery on stage and uh, and and there's uh, I think there's like 50 gunk machines hanging over them. By the end of the production, the stage is covered with gunk, and the actors are completely covered, the dancers. It's a very messy production. And the text is by Chuck Mee, who had the idea for it originally. Uh, it's called Falling and Loving. It's a glorious piece, and I wish somebody could afford to do it again. It's very expensive, and it takes a lot of energy. It's got, the crew has to be as large as the, the, the acting and dancing company because it's so... Technically difficult, but it's it's a piece I'm very very proud of, and could not Streb couldn't have done it without us, and we couldn't have done it without them.
2: Uh, Streb Company is like like you mentioned, like a, a very different approach to live performance than City Company, and, yes. and, and 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 she's a very different artist than you are. What are some of the things that you learned from that collaboration? And I know you've known her for a while, so you know yeah. or, or things you've learned from just observing her as an artist.
1: Well, first of all. First of all, Elizabeth Streb and I have a basic disagreement. I think all theater is metaphor. She does not believe in metaphor. She says, if a dancer crashes against a glass wall, that's all it is. It is a body against a glass wall. There's no metaphor. I say, if a, if, if a, if a body crashes against a glass wall, the audience is, is taking it as a metaphor for hard things in their lives, you know, that it's a, rich with metaphor. So we began with that disagreement. And another thing is she said, my dancers cannot speak. And I said, "Mm mm-hmm, they could do amazing things. And we were very fortunate that she had to go to Paris for a week in the midst of our rehearsals. And as soon as she went off, I looked at the dancers. I said, who wants to speak? (laughs) (laughs) But what I learned from her is courage. And the funny thing about Elizabeth, Elizabeth, you, if you looked at Elizabeth Streb, for anybody who doesn't know her, she looks punky and mean. She's really, she's hard ass. But when you sit next to her during a performance, she does, she makes these sounds the whole time through. It's like, ah, oh, oh. she's like terrified for her dancers <laughs> who are doing impossible things. She's actually one of the most vulnerable people I've ever mm-hmm. known. And yet she has this courage and this fierceness, which I, I learned from a, a tremendous amount. The actors in the company learned a lot. And I can say right in the beginning, they said, Anne, okay, we've done, a lot of, we've done a lot of collaborations, but this one's impossible. I'm sorry, this one's impossible. We can't do what these athletes can do. And plus, Elizabeth has this idea of these gunk machines, these huge buckets that drop all kinds of things, including syrup and, and, and uh, ping pong balls and blah, blah, blah. Everything, has, bucket has something different. We can't get all gunked up. We just can't. And I said, okay, uh, you don't, ha- there was a sort of area in which the, if you walked into it, it's sort of got a, it's like a little swimming pool. And if you walked into it with no, you know, with no depth, if you walked into it, you would get covered with gunk. And I said, "Well, you can you can just stand on the outside. We'll just don't worry about it. We'll figure something out." We started working together, and all of a sudden, the actors, I said, they said, "Okay, we want to go in." I said, "I said, but we don't want to get that dirty." I said, "So put on hazmat suits." <sharp inhale> then there was the day when they said, "Let's take off the hazmat suits. Let's just go in." It's such a process of learning, finding courage. Same thing for the dancers. They wanted to speak they were terrified and we had them speak beautiful and they speak beautifully they speak beautifully so you know it's a crash of cultures and as you say there couldn't be anything we're very very different and yet there is as an underlying truth there is something called respect that elizabeth and i have massive respect for one another and trust and with that you can do a lot and and embrace the differences in which case i would say the dissonances between us and among the two companies
2: um, something I've noticed about you for a while and that certainly comes through in this book is that you have a great interest in science and in kind of knowing the latest scientific discoveries I- I'd love to know kind of when did that begin for you when did you start reading you know books about science and and the brain yeah and like that? you know
1: I was always I was always terrible in math and science mm-hmm. terrible in high school, I couldn't get far enough away from it in college. But I, I. it started, I think, in about 1994. There was an article that came out. It was the front page of the New York Times Sunday magazine was a picture of Stephen Hawking. And the article that went with it, he said that, that there are such important breakthroughs in uh, quantum and astrophysics that everybody needs to study it in order to... Um, Learn what it means to be human, to be a better human being, what it means to live, what it means to die. You just need to know these things. And so I thought, okay, he's a smart guy. I better start figuring it out. So I I went to the bookstore and got all these books on like uh, quantum physics for beginners or Tao of physics, all these sort of for, for stupid people. And I started reading them and they were interesting up to a certain point but then when an equation came along, I just, my brain broke down. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't understand. So I'd put the book down. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd try again. I'd get a new book. and then, But I was traveling a lot at the time in my car because we were doing a lot of shows in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was dr- driving between Louisville and New York, which is like a 13-hour drive. And I decided at some point to, um, to get books on tape. And they were literally in those days on tape. And so I would get like the Tao of physics on tape, pop it in and start driving. Interesting. Interesting. Along comes the, uh, the equation and I can't understand. So I just space out, but I don't take the tape out. I just let it run. It's talking. And I'm looking at the scenery and the sky and I'm driving, thinking about other things. And all of a sudden I'd go, holy crap. I just un- understood Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. <laughs> Or, holy crap, I just got special relativity. And it's something that the physicists call fuzzy logic, that you can't understand something by looking at it directly. Mm -hmm. But actually, you, you have to, in a sense, relax. And I understood that. And from that moment, I've always been interested in, and then I do pieces about, because as I told you before, I'm so lazy that I don't do the necessary research unless I'm doing a piece about it. Uh, uh, I've done a piece about neuroscience and certainly about about quantum mechanics and or quantum physics uh, astrophysics etc and so it, it it made me relax and realize that I can grasp these notions if I just relax enough and don't get too intent uh, on understanding everything and that study has led me to to change to it has resonated with me and so i I, I enjoy studying now without being so afraid. Mm
2: -hmm. Another kind of uh, body of knowledge that you draw on a lot is spirituality. And I know you have a a meditation practice. I'm wondering for you, does the theater feel like a a, a sacred, uh, spiritual place?
1: 100%. I I actually think the theater is a spiritual activity, but there's certain words which one shouldn't use too often. And one of them is spiritual. Spiritual. In other words, if I went around, went around saying what we're doing is a spiritual activity, I think it would it it wouldn't end well. But ultimately, yes, at its heart, now what does that mean? It means that what we're discussing is not about you and me and our apartment and our problems, but we're we're discussing how we are interlinked. We are to use. Uh, science language we are talking about quantum entanglement how we are connected to the past how we are connected with each other how we are connected with different parts of the universe so certainly yes i think the theater is particularly a spiritual activity
2: yeah i wonder too about i mean because you're somebody do do you meditate every day or do you do i i don't know the terminology but is that that's a regular practice for you right
1: it is, um, but also when I was uh, twenty-two, I started studying Tai Chi Chuan, mm-hmm. and then I, you know, I went. I had a great teacher in New York, and then I went to Montreal where her teacher was, and got my teaching certificate. So Tai Chi Chuan has been a, um, and it's related to the the Taoist philosophies. It's a a physical embodiment of Taoism. So I learned. Taoism through the body um i spent years doing aikido i can't do it anymore because my hips and knees won't do it anymore but um uh certainly yoga all these physical um uh, uh practices that are connected to uh spiritual practice but i do i do meditate every day and it's a it's a good thing to do
2: yeah and I think too that that relationship to spirituality, not as this sort of like airy abstract thing, but as something that you you know you wake up every morning and you you do the thing, you 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 go through the actions that are an expression of a spiritual belief, yeah. feels like easier to translate into a rehearsal room than you know maybe a notion of what it means to be a spiritual person that somebody would have if they didn't have that kind of a practice.
1: Yeah, I mean it is a practice. It's a yeah. practice, and and it's a practice of remembering also what it means and. I think without a physical practice, it's quite difficult. And I would call meditation a physical practice, as is Tai Chi Chuan, a physical practice. That's very, very helpful.
2: There's one thing I want to ask you about. Um, you know, this is switching topics entirely, but uh, you you give in the book a kind of brief history of how viewpoints came to be, which I found fascinating. I didn't know any of mm. this story. Um, I've, yeah, you know, yeah. I've been hearing this term for 15 years, but I, I had no idea where it came from. Could you kind of tell us a bit about that story and how, how viewpoints came to be and kind of, I don't know, what is it?
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I very consciously in the book wanted to set the record straight mm-hmm. because I did not invent the viewpoints and I'm often given credit for having done so even though at the beginning of every Viewpoints class, over and over, I mentioned the person who actually, quote, dreamed it up, which is a, a choreographer named Mary Overly. And I met Mary Overly in 1979 when I started teaching. Both of us were in our 20s, and we started teaching at the Experimental Theater Wing at NYU, ETW. And she had, out of her own sort of solitude, had and her influence from the Judson Church era... Uh, dancers. She was a little after them, as was I. She's a tiny bit older than I am. She died recently, unfortunately. She came up with something. She asked, what is performance? And she sees it as subsets of time and space. And she came up with what she called the six viewpoints. And the word was separate. Viewpoints were two separate words. And um, she started teaching it and sharing it and working with it as a dancer to her students at ETW. And she and I started working together. And she showed me what she was doing, and it knocked my socks off. It blew me away 100%. Because I was used to theater, which was very hierarchical, where the actor waits for the director to tell them what to do. Mary's work was about saying, okay, here's a blank slate. You walk on stage, you're making decisions. You don't wait for anybody to tell you. You're making decisions about time and space, where you are and when you do something, how fast or slow. So subsets of time would be, Tempo, how fast or slow you're doing something. You know, duration, how long you let something last. Kinesthetic response, which is the timing uh, of your movement in relationship to other people's movement. Uh, Subsets of space, which is where you go on the stage, how you relate to architecture, what your floor pattern is, you know. Anyway, it was completely revelatory to me. And um, I took her work and I actually... She would say I bastardized it <laughs> I I uh, and she at various moments in our relationship sometimes she loved what I was doing and other times she was really angry at me and she left the country she went to Europe and for years I just kept working with actors, and I found that this work really created ensembles immediately, like within hours you could create a sense of ensemble, because it was a way that actors were actually taking control of the stage, they were actually making the choices, and I was editing. And when she came back from Europe, the thing that happened, and she was so angry about, is that I got credit for her invention. Mm. And I had also gone from six viewpoints, I have now nine viewpoints, and you know, seven vocal viewpoints that I really did bastardize it. And the mistake, which I put in the book is about, is that I, I should have changed the name. I should have called it something else. And she said to me at one point, she said, Anne, you know, I, I came up with all kinds of names. I was going to call it Windows, you know, which is very interesting. You look through the window of time or you look mm-hmm. through the window of space. Um, and, so, and so there's a contentiousness involved um, and and there's like two schools of viewpoints now, which makes me very sad, and I'm very sorry about that. But that said, what it is is allows actors to practice creating fiction using the elements of time and space, and starting from a blank 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 slate. In other words, you don't say, okay, you're going to now go in and make this. Is that they listen to each other and they come up with extraordinary work. And you know, I was in. Um, I was working on this piece about neuroscience and I was in North Carolina and um, I was doing a workshop with, uh, with um, uh, actors from Playmakers Theater, Playmakers Rep, and, and, and graduate students from the university there. And I was doing a Viewpoints Workshop. And while I was there, I was introduced to this famous neuroscientist. I was so delighted to see him. He was not a guy of the theater. We had dinner together and at the end of the dinner, I invited him come and watch a final showing of the Viewpoints Workshop. As I say, he's not a guy of the theater. He came to the final showing. There was a QA and a afterwards. He had watched the actors sort of create from nothing, sort of beautiful compositions and wonderful things. And at the Q&A, he raised his hand. His name is R. Grant Steen. He'd written really wonderful books. He said, what I'm seeing on stage is what the brain does. I said, what? He said, we found out the way that synapses talk to each other, that neurons talk to each other, the way that, that there's no there's no hierarchical system. It's a way of create how the brain actually talks to itself is what I was seeing on the stage. And I thought, that's why it's become so popular because mm. in a way it is taking the breakthroughs in science and applying it to how we relate to one another. It is a proposal of a different way of having a different social system a different kind of hegemony, if you know what I mean, yeah, that is yeah. very cooperative and very mutual as opposed to hierarchical. Going back to why we changed to shared artistic leadership as opposed to one artistic leader, mm-hmm. is to follow more what's happening in the world of, of science. Yeah, And the, theater, the theater's job ultimately is to take the ideas in science and arts that have, have the breakthroughs and translate them into how do we live How do we function together as a social system? Every play is about how we get along and how we might get along better. And it's usually plays are about social systems that are falling apart. And you watch the characters try to find equilibrium or balance from a state of of imbalance. And so the viewpoints is actually an expression of of things that we've learned about the brain and the human brain, for example or even internet technology, of how the internet works. So it's a way of creating theater that is more in line with what we have, have become to understand as a, as a, as a, in, in the world.
2: Well, Anne, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. I've already taken yeah. up so much of your time, but thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your book, The Art of Resonance. It was a real pleasure to read the book, and, and it was great to get to talk to you again.
1: Well, Andy, thank you for the excellent interview. You got me loquacious, so thank you.